Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I've got a bit of a treat this morning. I've got my author in live and it's Craig Sylvie. So good morning, Craig, and welcome to you. David, such a pleasure to be here with you. Now, being the runt of the litter used to be a disparaging term, a, a way of saying you didn't fit in. And Annie Shearer doesn't seem to fit in, but she adopts a stray dog, calls him runt, and together they take on the world in your latest novel, appropriately entitled Runt. <laughs> this is right, yes. Uh, runt is for readers of all ages, um, you know, readily digestible by children. Um, but, yeah, we head out into the regions, into the country town of ups and downs. Well, now, here we go. I, this is where I want to start, your lovely little township called Ups and Downs. And you're almost setting it up here to be allegorical for life in general. We all have our ups and downs. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in... Uh, in in setting books uh, in in places that that feel very localized but uh, are also universal, and so I think we can learn a lot from ups and downs. I think we can identify with a lot from ups and downs. But you also do it with the names of the characters. So our, our lead character is Annie Shearer. So what does her father do? What, where does she live? That's right. She lives on a sheep farm uh, out there in ups and downs. Her father Brian is um, well. He's a bit of a reluctant sheep farmer. Really, he's inherited the property from uh, his father, the the late great eccentric inventor Wally Shearer, um, and uh, you know Annie and Runt are quite a formidable team. Well, we'll get into that, yeah. uh, which is marvellous. But you see, Annie, if we if we look at Annie, they think she's a little bit weird. You, you've used the word eccentric; they think she's a little bit weird. She wears an old leather tool belt wherever it wherever she goes, but. It's very convenient. It has lots of pockets. It has lots of pockets. It's very useful for storing things. But it sets her apart in many ways. Is it she does. weird? I don't think Annie's weird. And Annie doesn't think she's weird. And that's the most important thing, I think. And But this whole notion of our eccentricities and the things we have as security blankets, I wear a peaked cap. I don't know why. I just think it typifies me or identifies me. Um, so this is one of the habits and, you know, I'm, I'm well over the hill. I'm well beyond Annie Shearer's age. And yet I've got these little eccentricities. Well, I as think well. it's a very fetching and debonair look. Thanks. It's working you. for you. <laughs> it hides my bald patch as well, which is the good thing. But it seems everybody has this question of whether they fit in, mm. even Annie's parents, Brian and Susie, because they've got their own eccentricities and even secret desires. Brian doesn't really want to be a sheep farmer. No, he, he sort of inherited the property as uh, as a duty, um, as something he felt responsible for. Um, while his father was uh, enmeshed in a, a legal battle with uh, one of the villains across the road, uh, Brian sort of came in to, to help out. Um, and, you know, his heart's not really in it. He has a hidden passion. Um, uh, and for Susie as well, who's a vibrantly fashionable, very upbeat lady, 
Um, you know, she feels responsible for keeping the family fed. Uh, she's, uh, you know... She's somewhat compromised. In somewhat compromised, yes. You know, they don't have a lot of money and so she's buying a lot of specials from the uh, discount racks and she's putting all these ingredients together into a, uh, a cuisine that she calls humble pies, which taste awful. Uh, however, the family doesn't quite have the heart to tell her. But everyone feels they have an obligation, a duty, be it whatever role you have in the family or whether you know, you've know you got to take over after your parents. But in other words, there's a parallel there between Annie in some ways trying to find her place, but something parents have to do as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's one of the beautiful things about the Shearers and why I admire them so much is that they're all making sacrifices, and they're all working towards a common aspiration. They all are very supportive of each other. And Annie is, in fact, supportive of Runt. They have a very special affinity. Why is that? Well, uh, you know, Runt was a street dog, and he met Annie Shearer, and she showed him a moment of kindness and generosity. And from that moment on, Runt chose her, and she chose Runt. And uh, they adore each other. And so close are they that Runt will obey Annie's every whim um, uh, and every command, often before she even thinks of it. Um, And, you know, it's a really beautiful bond that the two of them have. And very useful on a sheep farm. That's right, yes. On account of his many years on the streets of ups and downs evading capture, uh, Runt is quite a spry and agile and athletic little dog, um, and it does make them quite a formidable team when it comes to herding in the Shearer's sheep, which are routinely breaking out. And this will become uh, even more useful later in the novel, which we'll get to. Your villains, Fergus Fink and Earl Robert Barron. Terrible, you know, stereotypical sort of villains. Yes, but with a with a complexity, um, and they're complicated men. Um, you know, Earl, uh, who owns the property across the road, uh, which is vast and verdant, lush with uh, with grass, which is very attractive to Brian Shearer's sheep. Um, you know, Earl is something of a collector. He uh, he hoards everything from Rembrandts to Shakespeare's quills to. Uh, Uh, Freud's couches, but his most important and most valuable resource is the town's water supply. And he's dammed the river and he's choked the town out um, and he's starving them of their water. And uh, he's doing this because he's trying to put them under sufficient financial pressure that they sell up so that he can collect their properties. So the shearers are under pressure. And Fergus Fink? Colourful. Fergus. We encounter Fergus once Annie realises that she needs to save their property um, from the uh, from the avaricious grasp of uh, Earl Robert Barron. And because she has a proclivity for fixing things, which is why she carries her tool belt with her everywhere she goes, um, she stumbles across a solution at the Woolorama show, where she and Runt uh, notice a canine agility course, and they realise when they see all the hurdles, the tunnels, the slaloms, the A-frames, that they might have a competitive advantage. And so they enter. And in doing so, they realise that were they to do sufficiently well, they could qualify for the Crumpets Dog Show in London, which would offer a cash prize which would more than capably solve the Shearer's financial woes. Now, there are a couple of things standing in their way, and I know that we're going to get to them. Uh, one of which is the fact that Runt will not move if anyone else is watching. If it's just the two of them, 
he he will obey and his commands, but if anybody else is there, he won't move. The other obstacle, of course, is Mr. Fergus Fink, uh, who comes from a long line of Finks. Uh, they're very famous in the canine agility course community. Um, uh, every one of his forebears have won the national titles and crumpets, except Fergus. He's finished runner-up 15 years in a row, and he's getting increasingly desperate. So when he sees a young interloper uh, and a challenger in the form of Runt, he will stop at nothing to prevent them from taking the prize. So you've actually got a story, a problem, saving the farm. You've got your solution out there. Let's win the Crumpets show. We can make lots of money to save and it could be put to good purposes. But then you've got the hurdles in the way. And it's not just Fink or the fact that Runt doesn't work when people are looking. There are other problems. Every time we find a solution, we find a problem, and and this is the way the story progresses. I just want to sort of loop back to the Woolarama show because one of the little passages here deals with the log chop. There have been many injuries and mishaps over the years at the Woolarama log chop. The most famous of these occurred in 1963 when Jed Eggers, competing in the underhand chop, slipped and sliced clean through his ankle with such force that his foot tumbled all the way to the front row of the crowd. Within seconds, a curious magpie swooped down and attempted to fly off with it. The incident made the national papers. The following day's headline was Horrific Accident at the Woolorama Leg Chop. Fortunately, Jed and his foot were both saved. Jed even returned the following year to compete. His foot returned too, but it was no longer attached to his body. It had been pickled and preserved in a mason jar, and it became the official trophy of the Woolorama Log Chop. (laughs) Uh, I mean, boys would love that. Absolutely, I would love that. Uh, you know, what a trophy. You know, I grew up in the country and attended many, uh, many a regional fair, and I always look forward to the log chop. Um, and, you know, as a, as a committed coward, I found it fascinating, deeply frightening uh, that, uh, you know, this, this event took place. It's lunacy, but I loved every moment of it. And you've also got Max um, and his brother who's prepared to do almost anything that's suicidal as as an adolescent boy just to see if it'll work sort of thing yeah so this book has uh an appeal well that appealed even to me at my (laughs) age and what was going on and you've also got other nonsense in here like peach armory would you care to explain peach armory to the listener please well, a, a, a peach armory uh, is, of course, um, uh, it's a blend of fruits. See, Brian uh, has been squirreled away in a secret glasshouse and uh, his hidden passion, I, I won't go into it too much, but um, he has a hidden botanical passion and it's all about uh, grafting and, and uh, bringing new uh, botanical specimens to life and the peach armory is one of them. It sounds delicious. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I wish they existed. Um, Are we allowed to say what it is a blend Please of? do. Please well, do. A peach, a plum, and a cherry, all I mean, together in one. I mean, if someone could get to work uh, bringing that to life, I'd be, I'd be first in line. We'd be all set. Now, as we've pointed out, we've got the um, potential for all problems to be solved. Uh, crumpets based on Crufts Dog Show at all, was it? I... Uh, it was no chore, but I watched hours upon hours of footage of Westminster, Crufts, uh, you know, all these very pompous, austere, uh, wonderfully entertaining dog shows. 
Um, and yes, Crumpets is v- very much in, in the same league. But there's a couple of serious questions here then. Do dogs have phobias or do pets and animals have phobias? Well, of course. Of course, you know, um, dogs uh, can be anxious. They can have irrational fears. Um, they can be traumatised. Uh, you know, they can respond to things in, in ways that are readily understandable by us. And th- in some ways there's a parallel between Runt and Annie uh, in this regard. You've also come across the word pedigree. It's a funny word for a silly idea, you say. What's wrong with pedigree? Well, pedigree is the notion that... Uh, uh, your forebears can uh, forecast your future insofar as should they have been um, considered quite remarkable, then you, by extension, um, should should share in that. Um, however, you know, we, uh, the book argues, our narrative voice, who is quite opinionated, I have to say, um, argues that uh, regardless of who your parentage is, we can still be quite rotten people. And, you know, regardless of, uh, you know, if we come from poorer backgrounds where we don't have uh, much considered pedigree, we can be wonderful people and very successful. But it all picks up on this notion of who we are, our identity, our place in the family, things that Annie's going through, Max is going through for his matter, but even the adults are going through with that notion of pedigree. We get to the ending. We can't give the ending away, but you place the emphasis more on other things other than just the conventional notions of, of winning and losing. Is Annie going to win uh, the, the dog show? Will Runt get over his phobia? But towards the end, the whole town has been brought together, connected by a little girl and her dog. In all the homes of ups and downs, there is hope and there is happiness. There is a mysterious energy in the air. A strange force that makes the night feel alive in a way that it hasn't for a very long time. Something is stirring, something momentous. Even Earl Robert Barron can sense it. He sits up straight, sniffing, listening, looking over his shoulder. Outside the manor, the sheep bleat in a loud chorus from their pen. The horses whinny and gallop up and down the fence line. Kangaroos thump the dirt as they hop away. Boobook owls call eerily from the branches. It's simple, but almost poetic in the joy that it's bringing. I'm so pleased to hear that that it felt that evocative. You know, I think the beautiful thing about Runt is that it extends beyond Annie's primary ambition and it becomes about something more. I think... um, the wonderful book about the wonderful thing about this book is that it's about hope. Um, just by being herself, Annie Shearer inspires generosity and kindness and hope in the people around her. And even if you feel out of place, you can inspire that in others through your journey, and people borrow that, and even Annie's parents borrow that. So, for the listener, the reader. Runt by Craig Sylvie. Find out how a little girl, Annie Shearer, and her dog Runt, a sort of um, mongrel dog. Indeterminate pedigree. Indeterminate pedigree actually inspire the whole town of ups and downs. And it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Craig, thank you very much for talking with me today. David, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And here is Jan's pre-record. How much has changed for women over the years? 
What would you tell your 15-year-old self, apart from, thank goodness, there weren't any mobile phones? So what would you expect from a 15-year-old today? The Liars is a very good title for Petronella's McGovern's latest book. Welcome, Petronella. Thank you, Jen. Kinton Bay, mid-north coast of New South Wales, seems to be an idyllic coastal holiday town, surf, fishing and a community that has known each other for generations. But 20 years ago, it was in the news for other reasons. That's right. Kinton Bay had a number of missing boys or young men. One of them was a, a backpacker from Switzerland and that's why that was in the international news. The others were more local boys. Some had not so much news because he was a, a local who came from the wrong part of town and another boy from, another nursing student from Brisbane. But three missing young men seemingly unconnected 20 years ago. And more recently, a 63-year-old resort owner, Fabian Lavergin, and now a 21-year-old called Axel have become missing. This town, just like many others, has suffered hardship with the lack of tourist dollars over COVID. There is still a regional paper being printed. So, of course, what does the editor want? Well, the editor Neville only wants good news in his newspaper. Kinton Bay has been through the bushfires, the floods and now the pandemic. And finally, the tourists are returning. It relies on tourists for its um, business and survival. So the town only wants good news. It's the good news newspaper. Editor Neville had been congratulated for bringing in excellent advertising revenue for the paper. From what company was he doing the many advertorials? Well, there are a few local development companies, one a real estate agent and another one is Lance's building development company who is trying to um, do as much development in town as he can to bring, the, to bring tourists to make money to change the, the tone of the town. Just like Lance, Mary grew up in Kinton Bay. She's a reporter on the paper. She wanted to be a BBC journalist but instead got pregnant to another local, Rollo, nicknamed for his joint rolling ability, and it's their twin daughter, Sienna, who is 15, and she's in the media limelight. What did she report? So Sienna finds a skull in the National Park. It's near a place called the Killing Cave, and she wants to to tell this story which is a, a hidden secret of the town that no one wants to talk about and so she films the skull, puts it on her YouTube channel and uh, sends it to the media and it goes viral and it's on the news that night and immediately the town is completely divided and goes into turmoil about this, the origins of this skull. Yes, it was a shipwreck back in 1847. One of the sailors swam ashore and found the cave also. Well, do you want to tell the rest? <laughs> so he was, um, he, he ended up being the founder of the town, Kinton, Geoffrey Kinton for Kinton Bay. And he was a former convict and he ha- was on his, although the ship was on its way, I think, to Port Macquarie and when it's shipwrecked. So there are some survivors and when they're in the, in this cave, they're actually rescued by the indigenous people, the local people who look after them. But then Geoffrey Kinton decides that he wants to take more f- 
from the local people and there is rumoured to be an Indigenous massacre. Absolutely. Apart from being a good crime novel, you've also written about how a community can change. What story does Auntie Bim want to be acknowledged with? So Auntie Bim is the, the Aboriginal elder and she's been trying to tell her story for at least 30 years but nobody's been listening and it is this story of Geoffrey Kinton taking one of the local Aboriginal girl as his, I mean I guess we could say slave at his, as his um, and then and killing her family and her, and her extended family. There's a statue of Geoffrey Kinton in Kinton Bay, of course the town's named after him but it's this whole story behind this, and we get Sienna caught up with this, and she's called a white saviour. Yes, so that? Sienna um, wants to get the truth out there, and so she's obviously got different ways with the, with the YouTube channel, and she's talking to local, um, what she's talking to the news reports, news media, and they won't listen to Auntie Bim. But Auntie Bim says, why, why have we got the pretty little white girl talking mm. and not, not us? So it says something also about who the media will listen to, who's allowed to tell the stories and how these sort of hidden histories are controlled, I guess, by, by, not, not by the media, but by the dominant, mm. the dominant frame. And of course, there's Proclamation Day coming up in a couple of weeks, which has always been the Kinton family celebration. But should it be? So it's really a community learning and facing up to its own violent history. Well, the title is The Liars. Uh, early on, Sienna says she was at a friend's house when she was really at the cave with her friend Kyle. And when she asks her mother, did you go out to the cave when you were a teenager? Oh, there were lots of lies. Even Mary and Rollo, the parents, never really talked about their teenage years in the cave. Yes, so there's a, there's a number of timelines of things happening in the cave, sort of parallels across three different timelines in history from the 1840s to the 1990s to now with Sienna, the 15-year-old. And Mary and Rollo were at school together and there were some terrible teenage parties out there in the 1990s but again, this is about this hidden history that the town won't talk about what happened then. The girls wouldn't, the girls' story would not be heard. People didn't believe it and they wouldn't be listened to. So Rollo and Mary have never really discussed it. And there was this bond of silence in the wrecking crew. This was the gang that had a very bad name, but no charges were ever laid. And there was very little police follow-up. But now Detective Chief Inspector Douglas Poole has been appointed. He is here with his very successful wife, Carolyn. She's an associate professor in criminology from Sydney Uni. He's also held a big position in Sydney. So why has he found his way to this rather sleepy holiday mm. town? Well, Chief Inspector Poole is, is a bit like the moral compass of the story. He, in Sydney... He uh, undercover, uh, uncovered a um, corrupt cop, a, f a fellow colleague, and pushed to have charges laid and it went to court and the corrupt cop was, um, was charged. So he's sort of been, every, you know, everyone says they, they want um, 
open disclosure, but he's kind of feels he's been sidelined, but he's happy with that to go and set up this and be head of this police station up there um, and to become the new man in town. Let's have a little here from The Liars by Petronella McGovern. This morning, Poole called Rosalind Spencer, a detective here, when Stefan had disappeared. She'd been stationed out in the far west until retirement a few years ago. If I said to you hypothetically that we'd discovered three sets of human remains in close proximity in the forest, dated to the late 1990s, what would you think? Holy mackerel! I think those twins were involved, Blake and Derek O'Reardon. They were teenagers. Could they have done this? he asked. Rosalind gave a bit of laugh. Oh, yes, especially if the victims are girls. They were terrorising other kids, girls and boys. No one would press charges. Too scared. I should have done more, but Inspector Nelson told us the teenagers weren't a priority. Why not? Other stuff was going on. Scaffolding collapsed on the new wing of the hospital and killed one of the workers. There was a series of robberies at the shops and bowling club. Our sergeant got injured in a brawl at the pub and went on sick leave for nearly a year. We had an American TV crew filming a nature documentary around the foreshore and they required assistance. We just didn't have enough officers. Paul ran a hand over his crew cut and tried to imagine the station back then. Not so sleepy, Kinton Bay, he grunted. Absolutely. There is also an unidentified narrator who comes into the story every now and again who knows that they have to stay smarter than the police, that the skull is only 20 years old, and the first death was accidental. This was really good tension through the story. Now, we started, Sienna has a twin brother, Taj. What do we think his only interest is? We think Taj is only interested in whales. (laughs) Their father, Rollo, has a whale-watching business, but this book's divided into five parts, and each part of the book gives us different aspects of the humpback whale, which align to human behaviour. This was so clever, Petronella. Well, I liked the analogy between the whale behaviour and the human behaviour. And so we have seasons, so we have um, birthing birthing season, season, Hunting, boiling season, <laughs> hunting season, fighting season. Look, in the birthing season, we see how, or you would tell us how female whales keep their babies safe. And of course, in the book, Mary is tracking her kids on an app just to make sure where they are. Then, um, you know, we get the defensive and the predatory behaviour and we, we learn about how lethal even dead whales are. And why they kill. And, oh, look, it was fascinating. And that they're social animals. They hunt in packs or rescue other species. And how they can heal, even absorb carbon. Now, (laughs) Petronella, is this really true? This is all really true. I did a lot of whale research. And as you can see, you can learn a lot about whales in this book. And I was also interested in the male behaviour when in mating season and then the males um, fight each other for for the female whale. Which happens yes, in human behaviour too. Mm. Then we have Migaloo. Migaloo's the um, albino white whale who's well known along the east coast of Australia and um, everyone's always looking for a sighting of him. 
And all of this is linked back to the First National people who have humpback whales as their totem. Yes, so that was a really interesting aspect of the story too, and um, and that that comes into it when you talk about the dead whale. There is a not no no whales were harmed in the writing of the book, <laughs> absolutely not. But yes, there is a dead whale, and then there's a um, a ceremony for the dead whale as well. And the end. Now this will have readers and book clubs debating for. Ages. Oh, Petronella, you, you did it again. You know, the good teacher was fantastic, but I, it didn't have whales in it. It did not, no. <laughs> well, I do like a good twist, so I'm hoping it will be a surprise for most people. <laughs> now, as a published and successful writer, why did you undertake a Master's of Creative Writing? I actually wanted to do it 15 years ago, but I kept getting sidetracked by children and work. So finally, I um I did have time to do it, and I really enjoyed it. And it, and I made new contacts, new contacts and um, networks, and read lots of other things that I wouldn't necessarily have read in in normal day to and, day And life. this book was part of the. Um, I just just yeah one part of it yes so I, one subject I could do some of the work through that. Petronella McGovern has linked many issues such as teenage activism, toxic masculinity, female ambition and whales into The Liars, part crime novel, part history book, but all round very good read. Thank you very much, Petronella. Thank you so much, Jen.